It's S in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. Saturday Night Live, Season 2, Episode 8, starring Paul Simon, originally aired on November 11th, 1976. My name is Keith, and with me as always is my good buddy Matt. Hello, Matt. Hey, Keith. Happy Thanksgiving. You too, you too. <laughs> yeah, so we are here. It's uh, it's it's the Thanksgiving episode of Season 2, and joining us uh, with us quite regularly, but not always, is Chili. Welcome, Chili. Gobble, gobble, Keith. Gobble, gobble, Matt. I'm interested to see. This is a very uh, well-remembered, much-loved episode of Saturday Night. Paul Simon's musical guest tonight is George Harrison, and we'll talk about George in just a spell. But Paul Simon originally hosted uh, the second episode of season one, and it was uh, it kind of tanked with us. The only thing that's really happened for Paul Simon musically in the last year is he had his first and only number one hit as as a solo artist with uh, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. So, uh, Matt, we had uh, a lot of harsh words for Paul Simon last time. Going into this one, were you optimistic or were you just thinking same shit, different season? I was optimistic. I am optimistic because hearing that Paul Simon is the host leads me to logically conclude that uh, I will have to suffer his music less. I feel like Paul Simon has like a very small, every time I fucking hear Paul Simon, it's always like the boxer, 50 ways, still crazy, bridge over troubled waters. And then it gets all like murky and like, well, well, what's this song? And then they all, you know, it all just sounds the same. Then later he does call me out with Chevy Chase. Let's cover that video when we get there uh, (laughs) chronologically, because I would also like to shit all over that. We still have uh, quite a few more Paul Simon uh, episodes to go in our, in our journey. Chili, you and I, I don't know if we've ever talked about Paul Simon. I like Paul Simon. We've always been a Garfunkel family. We were raised that way. And, you know, I think just naturally, uh, you start to growing up, you don't necessarily like Paul Simon as much because you got to support art. As I age, I'm starting to recognize that, you know, Paul wasn't necessarily the worst thing in the world. And uh, I think during the course of the show, you'll get a better idea of what I think yeah, yeah, you can be pro-Paul without being anti-art. Our art's got a lot going for him. Let's get that right. Art <laughs> has a lot. Do we have a nickname, Matt, for uh, for, for Art Garfunkel? Big Dick Art. Very, very good. Well <laughs> Massive done. Massive member. <laughs> it's the energy that exudes from him. Is uh... I'm not surprised that they broke up as a duo. That must be emasculating for Paul Simon. <laughs> so uh, you guys good to jump right into the show? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. So our show begins outside. I, I kind of love when they start outside and you can see uh, the uh, the fans all along the street. And uh, Chevy is now busking outside of 30 Rock. So Paul Simon enters and he sees Chevy and they actually chat. Paul's asking Chevy how, uh, how things have been since he left the show. It's only been two weeks, but they're talking like it's been several years. And because Chevy has been reduced to busking, um, I guess things haven't been going well over those 14 days. Paul goes in the building. We cut to uh, Lorne Michaels chatting with George Harrison. And George Harrison is trying to get the $3,000 that Lorne offered last year. Um, but but Lorne is saying he he can't 
he can't give it to him at this point because it was a deal for all four members of the Beatles. Lauren gets pulled away by Paul Simon, who enters and says he has doubts about the costume he has to wear, and he thinks he's going to look like a fool. Lauren tells him to be confident, and Paul reluctantly agrees. And So with Paul out of the scene, George and Lauren chat. George is not going to go on. Lauren tells George that he can have the $750 but because he's only one Beatle, and Lauren says it's not up to him, it's it's the network's fault. And George refers to the network as being rather chintzy. But Lauren also says there is an extra $250 for being the person to say live from New York at Saturday night. George gives the line, making him the first musical guest to do so. I thought this was hilarious. I laughed through the whole thing. Paul Simon and Chevy were funny together. George and Lauren were hilarious together. Paul is setting up something bigger to occur in a few minutes. Um, this was probably, top to bottom, my favorite cold open to date. I got to agree with you, Keith. I thought this was an amazing cold open. The comic timing from everybody was perfect. Lorne was great. George, looking like, strangely, like Lorraine Newman's big brother or something. With that, the way his hair kind of feathers and he's got the nose and the long face. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I got Lorraine Newman vibes and what a sweater. I would love to have that sweater. Anyway, uh, everybody did a terrific job. And uh, I do like, I like when they start outside too. I think it's really cool. And yeah, G George was just, I was uh, taken aback, I guess, by uh, George's very obvious comedic timing and sense of humor. Uh, a pleasant surprise. Everybody did a great job. One of, if not my favorite, cold open to date. First of all, if I wasn't just muted there, you would have heard me out loud say, Thank you when you complimented George on his sweater. That's the first thing I have written down with exclamation <laughs> points. You know, I'm a heavier guy. I like a good sweater, and that's a good sweater. I mean, yeah, this whole thing was great. Um, I obviously am not keeping up with it the same way you guys are. So I, the whole Chevy busking outside thing, I thought, oh, that's a fun little bit. A pretty uh, meta joke on their own part. Overall, this was great. George, if I had any complaint, I found George and Lauren were a little bit mumbly, that that could have been the environment I was watching it in. You know, top to bottom, I thought this was really funny. And probably it seems like something that would have been written nowadays on like a, a more like high profile show, because it kind of set up a lot of stuff that was happening in the episode that would all tie yeah. together in a way back to this. So this was fantastic start. I think the mumbly was a little bit on purpose because, you know, they're talking money and they're, they're like, oh, maybe you don't know that. Uh, so I, I think they were, um, I think that was with intent. I'm not saying it, you know, makes for an enjoyable listening or viewing experience, but uh, I, I think they were deliberately being like that. One thing I, I should mention, it was mentioned before, uh, we have Don Pardo saying that some of the bits were, were pre-recorded on this episode. And I do believe anything featuring George Harrison is the stuff that was recorded the, the previous Thursday. This part could be, I think this was like, I think anything with George was Thursday. I don't like that. For some reason, like it doesn't bother me with the cold open. Cause I know they go to that well quite a bit over the years. That didn't hurt the segment for me, if that's the case. So Paul Simon comes out in a giant turkey costume and starts singing still crazy after all these years. And this is one of the probably best remembered monologues of the period, if not the best. He's very reluctant to be there in the turkey suit. Audiences in stitches. He's obviously annoyed to be doing this. He gives it his best and he just gives up. He says that it just doesn't fit with his image and everyone says he takes himself too seriously and he should loosen up. So he listened to them and now he doesn't agree with it. He gets mad and he storms backstage. 
Lorne stops him, and Paul is mad at Lorne and says he was humiliated, and Lorne thinks it's because the band might have come in too late. Paul tries to leave the backstage area and, and go to his dressing room, but he can't fit through the door. I thought this was also extremely funny. Paul Simon does typically take himself a little too seriously or a lot too seriously. I love that he was game for this. I, I just, I really love this, this monologue. It might also be my favorite monologue thus far. Yeah, this was great. It's a classic bit for a reason. Anytime they ever do an SNL clip show, even if they don't show any video from this, there's always a picture of Paul Simon in the turkey outfit. And honestly, he sold it great. You know, he didn't get angry or nothing. That just, he looked like a guy who legitimately did not want to be in that suit. So, you know, this was stuffed with laughter. They left a lot of meat on the bone. And I am very happy to say that it went well. Do the band come in late is a hilarious bit by Lauren. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was my favorite part when he very seriously, oh, what's wrong? Did the band come in late? <laughs> like that could be the only thing uh, going wrong, despite their previous conversations. It was pretty cute. Paul Simon did a good job. You know, I groaned when he started singing, but then I, you know, I saw the direction it was going and uh, I was pretty cool with it. Lawrence got some pretty good timing. He knows what he's doing. Another thumbs up from me. We now go to our first commercial or commercial for the night. Quarry, and this was written by Michael O'Donohue. He doesn't have to be dark, I guess. Quarry, it's uh, it's a breakfast cereal commercial, and it starts with a folksy song, shots of farmhouses and horses. It goes to Jane as a farm wife, pouring cereal for her family. And the cereal is Quarry, and it's just straight rocks. It's got no preservatives, no additives, and every serving is chocked full of minerals. And it's the only cereal that isn't grown. It's mined. Quarry used to be on the compilation uh, videos that they play as like the best of Saturday Night Live commercials. I always love this commercial and I always forget that it exists. So every time it comes up, this flood of memories comes back. I love this commercial. It's brilliant. Jane was in fine form. The loud crunching noises, the actors they had playing the, the family were perfect. This is one of their best commercials uh, of the, the 48 years of all the commercials I've seen. Quarry ranks super high with me. Jane was so good at playing that uh, mom to your right. The only thing I, I'm, you know, this is not a what would you do differently segment for me for sitting in my living room on a podcast to a dead successful comedy writer. I, I wish they'd bled when they were eating the rocks from the mouth. I really wanted them to start bleeding. Needed a little color. Yeah, it's funny. I remember this from clip shows and all that too. And to Matt's point, I almost remember this differently as if it's not like the Mandela effect. I remember this watching it as a kid and I remember them bleeding from the mouth. So I don't know what I'm confusing this with, but it's such a good parody. It's played straight, right? There's nothing too over the top aside from the fact that they're eating rocks. Another thing that always gets me too is that it seems like a parody of, oh, look, they're doing a parody of a commercial from the 70s. But I mean, it would have been current at the time. Obviously, it's more folksy being based in the farmhouse and all that. But it's funny to think of stuff that we look at as being doing a parody of a retro commercial. But that's just what commercials would have looked like then. They're three for three right now. And you guys are kind of freaking me out because I remember their teeth being broken, not bleeding, bleeding. So that, that's got to be something. Probably like from that time we all watched Ren and Stimpy where they ate teeth. Yeah, geez. It did hurt to listen to. Oh, yeah. Probably what they're going for. I don't mean like <laughs> nails on a chalkboard, but just the sounds of the rocks crunching. Ah, oh, like my teeth just hurt the sound of it. <laughs> 
So we go to a Chiron, and uh, there's a woman there who's a confused Garfunkel groupie. So our next bit is a the first of a lot of music, and Paul Simon does 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. This was from the previous year, still crazy after all these years, and like I said, it's his sole number one hit. And this was what it was. It was, it was a good version of a good song. For me, the keyboard or the synthesizer was way too loud. It was drowning everything out. But I can't watch Saturday Night Live and 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover without thinking of the Sweeney Sisters 10 years later. But, uh, you know, if you like Paul Simon, and I like Paul Simon, this was actually quite good, except for the friggin' synth. What an absolute shock. Paul Simon performing live, either 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, The Boxer, Still Crazy After All These Years, or Bridge Over Troubled Waters. Shocking. Shocking. <laughs> yeah, I, I like this. I, I just like the song in a way. Like very few songs I find have more, I guess, more different verses from the chorus. I've heard the song a million times. Until the chorus kicks in, I always think it's one of the more like maudlin Paul Simon songs. And then it's like, mm-hmm. oh, wait a second. No, this is 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. And then like you start tapping your foot. And then he brings it back down again to like, the more, I guess, haunting verse. And then it's back to the drop off your Keely and all that stuff. So it's a good song, well-performed. So after probably the best first 15 minutes of any episode, we now go to Baba Wawa at large. So it's Baba Wawa, Gilda Radner with Henry Kissinger, played by Belushi. Belushi's Kissinger is better than the last time we saw it, but that's about all I can say. It's still not as good as it has been. Maybe not chilly so much, but Matt, you and I have talked about Baba Wawa a lot so far. Um, there's nothing new to say for me other than what we've already said. Hey, I'll just tell you what to check out. Uh, go on go on your YouTube machines there and check out uh, Sherry O'Terry doing Barbara Walters on The View and ignore whatever this is. To your point, Keith, we did have a Baba Wawa for one of the episodes I did with you, and I'm past it at this point, too. You know, Kissinger wasn't the most energetic guy in the world. I never like over-excited Belushi, but I think I dislike really bored-looking Belushi even more. So this is a total thumbs down for both the performers, and there was no real jokes in it. Boring sketch. I thought Belushi was terrible in this uh, as well. I know Keith mentioned he's been better. I really just thought he didn't give a shit. I thought he was wretched. Maybe he also hates the Baba Wawa sketches. Yeah, I got a phoning it in vibe big time here. I don't know, Belushi, there were a few lines. It just seemed like he almost forgot them, and he didn't really seem to give a shit if he did or not. And maybe that's part of the Kissinger shtick is not, you know, being too laid back. But even, I just, to your point, even his body language, like he's slumped in the chair. He's he's just kind of gesturing broadly. Like it really feels like he does not want to do this sketch. I really, really hate Gilda Radner's Barbara Walters. You know what? And Keith has kind of alluded to it before. Uh, I never really sank deep into it yet because I know, you know, there's stuff to come and whatever. But Gilda Radner just really doesn't do it for me, to be honest. Uh, I don't find her stuff especially funny. She seems really sweet. She looks sweet. By all accounts, she's the nicest person uh, on the show. But she doesn't bring the laughs for me. No, I find of the three original women, she's my least favorite of the group. Maybe she's just more broad than the other ones. It's very hard for me to say why, but I don't know. It's it's funny because you never I think all you ever heard about was, you know, at least for me anyway, growing up, everything was Gilda, Gilda, Gilda. And you'd always mm-hmm. think she was, you know, portrayed as say like, you know, the female equivalent of Chevy. In reality, I go back and watch them like I think Lorraine is probably my favorite and the most versatile of the three. And Jane's always very competent, even though they don't give her as much to do. And Gilda, I just find, doesn't disappear as much when they have her playing characters as perhaps the other two do. It's 
know, maybe in a way it's like a Belushi thing where it's just very, very good at playing themselves more so than playing different characters. And and we're still in a we're still in a growing period. Like these folks are still establishing themselves. So we're not at the point where any of them are superstars beyond uh, beyond Chevy. Really, uh, the rest of them are still players on that show. There's no real breakout yet amongst these folks, and and we'll see that in the coming in the coming episodes. We now go to the Twilight Zone, and uh, Dan Aykroyd does a really fun impression of Rod Serling. The story of this Twilight Zone episode is three pretty young actresses played by Jane, Gilda, and Lorraine are told to meet a producer at the Blaine Hotel. Nice shout out to the Blaine there. Serling stands off in a corner as he narrates. And the joke turns out to be that he was drunk and he told three different pretty young actresses to meet him in the room. He gave all of them the same time and place, though. This was done in black and white. The costumes and sets were great. This was good performances by all. Now, you could see the punchline coming a mile away, but I still loved this. Um, Everyone was great. This might not air in the post-Harvey Weinstein era, but uh, it was still very, very, very enjoyable. Aykroyd nails another impression perfectly with Rod Serling. Yeah, he was great as Rod Serling. And of course, as soon as it started, I was like, okay, or, you know, Jennifer Lawrence and Gwyneth Paltrow, I guess are going to come in next from the Miramax crowd. Yeah, as much as I like Dan Aykroyd, Garrett just continues to be wasted. I thought that being able to see this coming from so far away really actually harmed it. Because when it ended, I was like, well, that didn't really have an ending because I thought there was going to be something more. Uh, I bet you Lorraine got a good kick out of it. Uh, For some reason, whenever I always think about Lorraine whenever this horror stuff comes up because I read how much she loves it. I thought the ending was really, really weak. Really kind of brought the whole thing down for me. Dan was great. Uh, The girls were just kind of there. They didn't really do anything. I'm pretty 50-50 on it. I really thought it was a great idea, but then it just kind of fizzled for me. Yeah, this is a weird one where it was very well acted by everyone. I mean, Dan's impression was spot on. The girls were all really good in that kind of naive, like 1950s horror acting. And even Garrett was funny as, you know, he had, what, one or two lines. But, you know, he had fun with it, had some good facial expressions. But there was no jokes. And maybe that's part of being able to see it coming from a mile away. But there's nothing funny in it. It was just well done. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it wasn't offensive. And I like the Twilight Zone, so I guess it was good. Although it, it wouldn't get made nowadays. Yeah. So we have a Chiron and the man in the in in the audience thought this was a peer group and sitting in front of him is next week's host. Young Jodie Foster is there and Jodie Foster is one of many celebrities that the Internet has seen in this audience. She's the only one I could identify, but different people have said that Sissy Spacek and Art Garfunkel can be seen at different points in time. I couldn't identify them, but that's definitely Jodie Foster there in front of them. Are you telling me that Art Garfunkel brought himself to this show and he doesn't even get on camera what i I don't think so i I think it's just it's on the imdb trivia section that garfunkel's in the audience uh, during one of the chirons and i scoured the chiron so unless he's got like a big hat and a scarf or something i i didn't see him i can't imagine he would be in the in the building because if he's on bad terms with simon he doesn't want to see it if he's on good terms with simon he's going to perform yeah Plus, he needs an extra seat beside him for his carry-on. <laughs> a front row seat. <laughs> I think he probably was there, but since Lauren had to pay George Harrison $1,000 earlier, he couldn't afford to have Art on camera. That's true. <laughs> Cut from the version you guys saw, but I, I actually saw it 
through through my version is just a quick bit where Garrett introduces Jodie Foster's next week's host and Brian Wilson, the musical guest, as the uh, prince of white people music. So that was just a funny, quick bit, but it didn't make the uh, the version you guys have. Weekend update. Jane tinkers with birth control pills and she gets caught by the camera. I'm really glad the phone is gone. She does a story about the diaphragm being the new method of contraception, but it's harder to swallow than the pill. Really funny side gag with Jimmy Carter holding a cup and says he's begging for money. There's a Harry Reams joke and uh, Jane apologizes to her mother and says, I'm sorry, it's my job. So there's no real commercial in this one, but it does kind of break with a, uh, uh, the next bit. So up to that point, fellas, how's weekend update for you? I mean, I'm happy to see Jane back. You know, they did the same Patty Hearst joke that they did last season. And I'm sure they do every time about how she was bound and gagged and brought to her next location. Uh, the Harry Reams joke was funny with her follow-up. Uh, in case anyone doesn't know who Harry Reams is, <laughs> Harry Reams is, I did a bit of research. Uh, so he was a porn star, went to trial for performing in the movie Deep Throat. Uh, he received a ton of support from Hollywood stars like Jack Nicholson, Warren Beatty, because he was going to jail for just appearing in a film he had nothing to do with the making of. And then most of that goodwill pretty much disappeared after uh, he came out of porn retirement in the 80s, where he uh, unfortunately did some scenes with, uh, I guess, the notorious uh, Tracy Lords, who was 16 years old at the time. That's the Harry Reams research, and that's thank the you. Actually, thank you. Good, uh, good start to weekend update. I thought the pill gag was funny. Jane was definitely smirking through that Harry Reams joke. She was, uh, she wanted to have a little laugh. Uh, that was fun <laughs> to see. And her, I just find her delivery is getting better the more she does this. There's an increased confidence uh, that mm-hmm. I, I definitely get from her. She's she's growing into it for sure. So then we go to uh, Lorraine. She's at Mineola, Long Island. And a Nazi war criminal was identified in that small town. But the town folk all like him and they say he's a good resident. In the background of this bowling alley or whatever she is, there's a bunch of other Nazi, full full uniform Nazis roaming around. I, I got a little kick out of this one. Morris the cat tried to kill himself and left a suicide note, which was the meow, 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 meow jingle. Unfortunately, he could only think of eight ways to kill himself and still has one life left. So Jane asks people to send letters in with a suggestion of how Morris can take his last life. And a new strain of gonorrhea was found in the United States, and it was all the states that Idi Amin had visited. Garrett comes out as a scientist and says, if you look through a microscope, uh, you can see this new strain of gonorrhea, and it's an old, violent cartoon. This is the second Idi Amin VD joke, if you remember Idi VD Amin. It stems from a 1975 article I found where an Israeli doctor said Amin was uh, suffering from syphilis, which was the cause for all his erratic behavior. So that explains a joke from last year, too. Second half, not as good as the first, but I did get some laughs out of it. Yeah, me too. I think Garrett continues to be wasted. His whole piece there I thought was really stupid. I did like that Lorraine leaned off her uh, typical reporter voice a little. I thought she was a little softer. Came across a little more natural to me. The Nazis escaping persecution in America is a hilarious idea. That could be something bigger. Not that anybody's going to write it. Maybe now, certainly not in 1976. But anyway, I thought the idea of Nazis escaping persecution in the United States was very funny. 
And another thing I like about Jane more than Chevy is that she really, uh, her cadence, her voice on the serious stories versus the fluff stories, like you really tell the difference in her delivery, uh, just like you would watching your local news. And I really think Chevy, Chevy just, just did not have her depth in his delivery in that regard. I say it every episode, and maybe I will for just one more after this one. I really don't get the lore for Chevy Chase and Weekend Update. Well, that's our public service. We're, we're busting lore. Yeah, I'd agree. Second half of Weekend Update, not as good as the first half, but not bad. Just not too much to write home about. So we go to our musical performance here, and it's uh, George Harrison and Paul Simon together. He had just released his album 33 and a Third, as in just as in like a couple days before, I think, or maybe it was coming out the next day. This was pre-recorded on the Thursday in the audience, I believe, is crew and cast. For this performance, I mean, it's crew and cast seeing Paul Simon and George Harrison. So this isn't any applause are probably not shilling. They're probably quite genuine and uh, would probably make up the same amount of fans as any other demographic. So I gave that a pass. Still don't like pre-recorded music on the show, but either George's schedule or his nerves were actually not cooperating at the time. So that's the story there. But this is, yes, another Carly Simon situation. So uh, Paul Simon and George Harrison play a very nice version of Here Comes the Sun, which was originally released on 1969's Abbey Road. I really like this version because it's devoid of that high-pitched sun, 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 here it comes, which I always found to be the worst part of the original song. And then they play Homeward Bound from Simon and Garfunkel's Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Time. It was come out in 66. Now, this song was more famously, most famously used in the Gary Weiss airport video. But these are good sound, good performances for two guys that hadn't collaborated before this. And I don't think they'd even really met one another very often. Um, they do sound good together. I was devastated when I saw Paul Simon sitting out there with George Harrison. I really wanted a George Harrison musical performance, and I didn't get it. Uh, on top of that, I don't think you should do the show if you're not there on Saturday night. You do the show on Saturday night, or you don't do the show. Uh, I appreciated his uh, gamesmanship when it came to uh, the, the comedy and the cold open. He was really good. Huge miss for me. I didn't like the song selection either. Listen, I think All Things Must Pass is one of the best albums of the 70s. I had my timeline screwed up. I'm sitting here thinking, shit, maybe I'm going to get to hear I'd have you anytime. I think that song is brilliant. Maybe he'll do My Sweet Lord. I don't know. But, you know, then he did a Beatles song and a Paul Simon song, and it didn't work for me, guys. Strong disagree on that one. I didn't know this was pre-recorded, so I took this as if it was uh, happening live. And, uh, yeah, honestly, I thought it sounded great. Here Comes the Sun I liked better of the two. I just find it's an easier song, like Homeward Bound. Yeah, that's a Simon and Garfunkel song. You know what I mean? George is a great singer, but it's a different type of voice than Art Brings to the Table. So I think the two of them sounded better on Here Comes the Sun. The two of them combined, the way they were dressed, it was like they were cast to be like an odd couple sitcom pair. Like Paul was kind of the... <laughs> It, and it'd be like Balky and cousin Larry Appleton <laughs> playing music and staring lovingly into each other's eyes. Yeah, I mean, overall, I, I I can definitely see live or not why this would be exciting to see on to see on TV back at that time. I noticed that, Matt. They went back quite far in their in their respective catalogs. 
Paul Simon actually would have a, a nice, like if they're going to do it together, he'd have a good voice for My Sweet Lord, actually. Yeah, My Sweet Lord is uh, fantastic. I really, don't get me wrong, that wasn't a, a hot song at the time either. That came out six years ago, I guess, at this point. They throw to a, what they call a movie by George Harrison, but it's actually a music video. It's a video for Crackerbox Palace. The song also from 33 and a third released later as a single in January 77 and went to number 19. This music video is directed by Eric Idle and it features some cameos from some people from Idle's career, including Neil Innes and Graham Chapman. But for me, the audio on this, uh, I watched two different versions of this and the audio was shit on both of them. And uh, I mean, this is not a place for a music video. I remember this video from when I was a kid. I thought it was weird then. I think it's weird now. And I get this is kind of his thing, but there's something very odd about George Harrison, but in the nicest type of way, despite being one of the most famous musicians in the world for a good amount of time at that point, he always just kind of came off like just a guy down the block who can't believe this is a real thing. So he doesn't take himself too serious in that respect. But yeah, the audio sounded like it was recorded from inside of a submerged car. Sometimes I think George Harrison would have preferred to be in Monty Python rather than the Beatles. Oh, 100%. And I mean, I like both. I was reading something when I was reading about uh, the show a little bit after I watched the episode. Somebody noted that, uh, you know, none of the other Beatles would have uh, been able to pull this off. John has no sense of humor about himself and Paul would be mugging too much for the camera. So he's really the only one that could pull off Saturday Night Live. Uh, in this particular time period. I do agree with that, especially after having watched Get Back, which is an excellent documentary, if uh, anybody is so inclined to check it out. Really Beatles insightful, I found. So we now have a Chiron, and this guy, they show, is leaving here alone. So he he combs his hair to prevent that from happening. I did get a little laugh out of that one. Yeah, good for him. Now we go to Billy Paul, and this is a parody of... Uh, Tom Laughlin's 1971 movie, Billy Jack, which inspired a whole bunch of uh, sequels. Well, about, only about two sequels, actually. And also inspired a professional wrestler, Billy Jack Haynes. So Simon plays Billy Paul, a fighter for truth, justice, wild horses, indigenous people, and runaway kids of all races. So the first half is just Paul Simon on a fake horse in front of a bunch of uh, slides and almost looks like a viewmaster as Jane Curtin narrates his story. Um, The second half takes place in an ice cream parlor, and it's some hippies and Native Americans, played by Gilda, Neil Levy, Garrett Morris, and uh, Lorraine. Um, And they're there to order ice cream, and the Ackroyd, playing the clerk, will serve Lorraine, but won't serve any of the other ones. Gilda Radner, in order to inspire Aykroyd to be more loving, she sings uh, a version of Buffy St. Marie's cover of Elvis's Until It's Time to Go, and she does a pretty funny impression of Buffy there. Belushi comes in as Luke, the town bully, and he covers the non-white people with flour. And some sick fuck in the audience thinks it's absolutely hilarious when Gilda gets a big pile of it in the face. Then Paul Simon comes in as Billy Paul and beats up Belushi, sends him flying through the window, and he gets a triple cone with strawberry, chocolate, and vanilla, which was later known as Neapolitan. And they march off together with the ice cream cones held high. In this one, you see Shelley Duvall sitting down front with uh, Tom Schiller. 
she was dating Simon at the time. Uh, Rosie Schuster and Marilyn Suzanne Miller are in there too. Some places credit Lorraine's character in this as her her Sherry. I, I don't think that's Sherry though. So uh, I really enjoyed Paul as this ass-kicking hero in the first half. I thought that was really funny. Second half was too long. Definitely a little too touchy even for then. Makes a lot more sense if you've seen the Billy Jack movies, which I've seen. Somewhere I read that Billy Jack had actually debuted on NBC either that night or the night before. Um, all things considered, though, this was really long, kind of uh, kind of cruddy, actually. One thing I did notice for the first bit when he was on the horse, though, is Paul Simon, I always find really funny because he's this tiny, tiny man. But anytime you see him in like a T-shirt or whatever, he looks like he's shredded like he looks like he's in really, really good shape, which you would not expect from Paul Simon to be sitting there, you know, doing push-ups or pull-ups or whatever. And he just looked like, if you remember about 10 or 15 years ago, every tabloid show had Little Hercules, who was like the eight-year-old kid who could do 500 push-ups a day and all that. Just kind of looked like Paul Simon there. <laughs> not for anything to do with like race or creed, but I don't know if I'd serve those hippies either. <laughs> like They're just annoying. I don't... I didn't enjoy them too much. Uh, I found Paul as Billy Paul was hilarious as the menacing good guy. You don't want to get angry. <laughs> I'm laughing at it now thinking of his face while doing it. And I really, really liked his performance in this. I thought it was a home run. Loved it. I still find it funny now, hours later, thinking about it. I'm a little more with Keith on this one. Certainly, uh, perhaps a little further than Keith. I really hated this sketch. I thought Lorraine Newman was excellent. She does such a good hippie, just like her, uh, very similar to her Valley Girl, you know, same chick, different decade. Uh, and I thought Dan smashing the cone spitefully was absolutely hilarious. But uh, everything else was a complete miss for me. I did not like Paul Simon, didn't find him funny. Belushi was fucking stupid. I, I did not like this sketch outside of the two performances from Lorraine and Dan. Yeah, I know what you're saying, uh, Chili. I think the timing or something was just a little off for me um, as far as Paul Simon playing this, you know, ass kicker. Um, it, I mean, he was even dwarfed by Belushi, right? Yeah, it, it could be that you guys have seen, like, this is the first Paul Simon on SNL I'm seeing. So maybe this could be something that they may have done something similar or whatever on the previous times he was on. But for me, it seemed fresh, but it's still kind of a one note joke but i just like the note they played honestly the other episode he did was uh was all music except uh there were two sketches and chevy did weekend update and then there was a video of paul simon playing basketball against connie hawkins so as far as paul simon quote unquote the actor this is really the first we're we're getting to see him oh yeah it was a really it was a really disappointing episode Simon comes out again um, and does something so right. And it's from 1973's There Goes Ryman Simon. This song didn't get released by Paul Simon, but Annie, Annie Lennox did quite well with it. Yeah, this was, uh, of all the music, this was the low point for me. Yeah, I agree. Maybe just not being as familiar with the song or just we've had so much music already. I was ready for this one to be over. I thought it was bad, but nothing to write home about I mean, I have nothing to add. Fuck Paul Simon, lighting him from behind like that angelically. Give me a break. So now we go to Dan Aykroyd uh, playing Tom Snyder. He keeps mixing up who Paul Simon is. First, he thinks Simon is the head of an independent truckers union. And then he thinks he's Neil Simon. Then he thinks he's one of the Beatles. Um, Dan Aykroyd's Tom Snyder is hilarious beginning to end. Paul Simon was very good in this with just this sort of incredulous 
you know, who is this guy? What am I doing here? Yeah, I laughed through this whole segment, to be honest with you. And it's 100% at the feet of Dan Aykroyd's Tom Snyder. When I realized what this was going to be, I absolutely popped. I was a big fan of Tom Snyder's show in the 90s. Obviously, didn't get to live through him in the 70s. What a great impression. He's got the laugh down. The, you know, the, the mannerisms didn't change into the 90s, nor did the, the, the bizarre cadences and offshoots when he thought he had a Japanese wife. Ha, ha. Funniest part of the episode for me. I, I love this. I love Tom Snyder. <laughs> this may be a good credit to them because I'm not familiar with Tom Snyder. And I also thought this was really funny, even if it was just, you know, in my brain, it was just Dan doing some weird host. So, no, this is great. I like this a lot. It was funny. It didn't stay on too long. Uh, it got to the joke and got past it. I did do a bit of research, though. According to my LinkedIn, there are about 75 Paul Simons who are truckers. <laughs> Just in case you're wondering how they got confused. I checked to see if in his entire career, Paul Simon ever wrote a song about trucking or truck driving. And the closest one I could find was uh, something lines of you have to keep the customer satisfied, which could be about a truck driver. In case you're wondering how they could have gotten... This Paul Simon confused with whoever they thought they were booking. Those are some options. There's also a CD you can get on Amazon now that'll set you back about 12 bucks called Eddie Stobart Trucking All Over the World. And one of the songs is Call Me Al by Paul Simon. Very good. Thank you, Jilly. I'm loving the extra research here. <laughs> Have you watched Tom Snyder since watching this episode, Jill? No, no. Sit back and watch the pictures as they fly through the air. Yeah, on the color teeny. Pull up the uh, Tom Snyder Kiss episode. Have you seen that one, Matt? Yeah, of course. That's like uh, my, my two worlds diverging. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'll ever have any chance to promote this TV special to anyone. But since we're talking about Kiss appearing on late night shows and it's on SNL, which is covering late night variety show, uh, do yourself a favor and check out the Paul Lind Halloween special featuring a very young Kiss. It's the weirdest combination of celebrities I've ever seen. And it is a good watch come Halloween. I will absolutely do that. Dan Aykroyd as Tom Snyder throws to another music video. This song, George Harrison, again, from 33 and a third. This one hit number 25 on the Billboard charts. The video is a courtroom scene, and a lot of it is a lot of it references his plagiarism case. Again, another music video I didn't really want to see on Saturday Night Live. I don't think this is a place for music videos on Saturday Night Live. I, uh, you know, it's a variety show, but the, they've already established their format. Uh, and had it not been established, I could see, yeah, put a music video on a variety show. That makes sense. But with their established format, I really don't think it works. I, I would have preferred a Gary Weiss film in this block. Uh, I didn't like having another music video. And you know me. There's too much fucking music this whole episode. It's driving me nuts. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of it now either. I can see with the format they had where they would always have, you know, a Gary Weiss film or a, um, you know, replace the Mr. Bill sketches with the home videos. I can see 100% why they'd say, okay, this week we'll cut out one of those so we can put on George's videos. Because George's videos are wacky. Maybe they're funny for the time. I don't know. But I can definitely see this as being something where if they did it for one, it would make sense. But they had two separate music videos. One, I could have let go. Two, it was unnecessary. And this would have been the one I wouldn't have shown, to be honest, even though the audio was far better. 
So our next song is Bridge Over Troubled Water. Beautiful song. It's Simon doing this without Garfunkel. It's not great. Garfunkel doing this without Simon is fantastic. Okay, that's a moot point. How did Simon do? He did okay, but way too much music, even for me. I like Paul Simon, but uh, at the expense of another sketch, uh, I, I wasn't happy about this at all. I really would have cut out the last song, Something So Right, and maybe stuck Bridge in there or something like that. But, uh, I mean, it's nice to hear this song, but this is the lesser two of the two to sing this. Yeah, this was unnecessary. Obviously, it's a classic song, but exactly your point. It's peanut butter without the jelly. Is it good? Yes. Is it as good as you're used to? Not really. And if you can't do it that way, if you're not promoting a new album with that song on it, you're probably better off just leaving it off. It's like Paul Simon trying to please a woman after she's been with Art. (laughs) So we're now with the good nights and Paul apologizes to Michael O'Donohue and says, you know why? And uh, general consensus is something of Mike's Mr. Mike probably got bumped. I will say the cast seems absolutely delighted by their performances. They're loaded with energy on this one. The audience really was quite electric at the end of this episode. Everyone seemed very pleased with the uh, with the evening's events. I mean, I'm glad they enjoyed it. <laughs> so, uh, Paul Simon, he was uh, a lot better in this ep- in this episode than he was in the first. He was trying some comedy and doing it fairly well. The turkey bit was hilarious. Um, he was fine in Billy Paul, but Billy Paul was too long. I absolutely enjoyed him way more in this one. He does have a good deadpan that's extremely believable, yet completely unbelievable. It's like a a limited actor that knows his range. They used him to his best, although maybe not as much as they could. And Paul Simon will be back at a later time. What are you guys thinking of Paul? I thought he did great. Wasn't sure what to expect going in, especially because I know his last episode was not great. But, you know, this was a very, very good turn for him. Even though George was down as a guest, Paul was just as much, if not more so, a musical guest. Well, he was more so a musical guest, too. Yeah, no, I think he delivered on all fronts. I'm not trying to be a broken record, but uh, I don't like Paul Simon. Uh, He expressed some good comedic timing and a couple of opportunities he had to use it i thought that cowboy sketch was really stupid and otherwise it was just way too much music uh, which is obviously the reason they brought him in it seems Uh, and i don't really dig that philosophy so yeah bad bad host choice for me and i was optimistic because as i said at the beginning i was like oh paul simon's hosting george harrison's the musical guest i'll get less paul simon music (laughs) what a fool i was (laughs) So the music, uh, this was, uh, I mean, this is a monumental night for music. It's it's Paul Simon, it's George Harrison, two superstars of their era who are still household names today. As far as George's stuff with Paul, it was great. I don't like that it was pre-taped, but uh, in a weird way, it kind of felt live enough, but I'm still not giving it a pass because I didn't for Carly Simon. Uh, nice performance, but I, you know, like I said, wish it was live. Simon, too much music. There could have been another sketch in there, and they were on a good writing streak here. Everything that was on the show except Baba Wawa was good, so I'm sure something else could have been in there. There's no need for these music videos. George might, having not been uh, physically there, this might have been a way to bump up his presence. There's probably something to do with the Eric Idle connection. 
I liked uh, George just fine. He did that little bit at the beginning, which, you know, obviously isn't a musical thing, but he was fun in it. And it's very, it'll be very, very hard to ever make me not like any performance of Here Comes the Sun. So I think it was good. Uh, I've also not had a ton of great musical guests on the episode. <laughs> it's often overlooked when, because of the guests I typically am on to host uh, are usually awful, but I haven't had a ton of great musical guests either. So getting George Harrison with Paul Simon, I, it was a thumbs up for me. Such a letdown to see Paul perform with George. I really just wanted to see George. I mean, I, I don't have anything new to add that I haven't said during the episode, but uh, yeah, I, I was a disappointed fella. So what was your worst sketch or worst bit of the night? For me, I think the worst would probably be uh, Baba Wawa. It just wasn't much to it. Neither one of them looked like they wanted to be there. And it was a boring sketch that had no jokes to it. Agreed. Barbara Walters worst sketch of the night for me. And, uh, and I mean, I didn't like, I really didn't like that cowboy sketch either. So that's saying a lot, but this is, this is, uh, this Barbara Walters stuff is the, it's killing me. It's really bereft of humor entirely. Yep. Three for three here. Uh, Baba Wawa for me sucked the air out of a stellar first, like 10, 15 minutes. There was no need of it at all. Um, I don't, not only do I like, not like the sketch, but it was, it was in a really good spot where like the Twilight Zone or Tom Snyder could have been. Belushi looked like he was phoning it in and even Gilda looks like she's getting a little sick of it. So what was your best sketch or bit of the night? I think this is my first time giving it to it, but I'm going to do a bit of a combination of the cold open and the monologue. It tied everything together. It was funny. It got... Everyone on screen, including Chevy, who's not even with them anymore. So it was really well done because it kind of encapsulated the entire show that was going to come while being funny at the same time. Sketch of the night for me was Tom Snyder. Uh, Dan Aykroyd did a fantastic job with that impression. It was just like his show. And, uh, you know, Paul Simon didn't have to do anything but sit there and be mildly annoyed, which uh, I'm sure he perfected in his musical duo. But yeah, this was a big hit for me. Dan Aykroyd gave me a lot of laughs in this, which I desperately needed in this episode. (laughs) I love the monologue. I love the Tom Snyder. I even love the Twilight Zone. Ultimately, though, I went with Quarry. Um, It was just bloody perfect to me. This was a really hard choice for me, though, and for the first time in quite a few weeks, it's been a lot harder to pick the best than the worst, so that's a good sign. I was going to say, too, it's also probably a good sign that we've all chosen for our best bit, not only different sketches, but different types of things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good, great point. If we had a fourth person, they would have chosen Weekend Update. Star of the Night, Chili? Uh, for me, Star of the Night, I'm going to give it to Paul Simon. I thought he did everything he was asked to do. You know, a little bit too musical could they have lost one or two of the songs absolutely but i found he was funny when he had to be the turkey sketch the opening and even i enjoyed the billy paul sketch at the end because of mainly his performance in it so he gets the star of the night for me dan Aykroyd's star of the night for me between his two terrific impressions of tom snyder and rod serling i really did enjoy him smashing those cones very spitefully and I, oddly enough, went with Jane Curtin for Quarry, her bit in the Twilight Zone, um, a weekend update, and she narr- narrated the better part of uh, Billy Paul. If she'd only, like, wandered out during the Tom Snyder bit, it could have been a complete grand slam for Jane. So, uh, I'm, interestingly enough, we also have three different stars of the night. So, overall, 
To me, the show was one of many starts and stops. It would roll along excellently and then come to a screeching halt. Whether it's music or Baba Wawa or music videos, uh, things were just really sucking it out for me. I like Paul Simon. I like George Harrison. I like their stuff together. Something So Right just completely bombed for me. You know, I don't know if I can ever give a perfect 10, but the first like 12 minutes of the show were pretty damn close. The high points were very, very high. Most of the low points weren't that low. What I liked, I loved, and what I didn't like, I didn't really necessarily hate. I really agonized over this one, but I wound up giving this one a 7 out of 10. I like this one a lot. Very much feel the same way. But even the lows were not that low compared to some of the extreme lows that have been on the show. If one of the low points of the show is like four-minute George Harrison music video, I'll take that over watching the Muppets or racist Indian impressions and all that. So I would rather what we saw tonight over almost any other episode I've seen. And there was also not much Belushi, which seemed kind of weird for a show that just kind of recently lost its number one male star. He had very little to do, which might mean why I like this episode so much too. Uh, So I am giving this one actually an eight out of 10. I thought the cold open was one of the best they ever did. I tolerated the monologue just fine. I thought it was cute and a little funny, especially Lorne actually. But after that, it really starts to slide. Corey was pretty funny. There is entirely too much music. The humor that comes in between, be it the Twilight Zone, which I thought didn't have an ending. Uh, Weekend Update was good. I really liked Jane. The the cowboy sketch I, I thought was shit. And I, I uh, Tom Snyder obviously got the, the best laughs of the night for me. But overall, this is a show that relies on you liking Paul Simon. I don't like Paul Simon. Uh, I think he's really boring. I don't mind picking on the music this episode because they showcased it so prominently. It's just so white bread. It's so lame. Like, this is why punk music becomes popular, because we're sick of this fucking boring shit. Parent rock. I I don't know how else to put it. Anyway, I won't get off on uh, too big of a rant here, Dennis Miller. I give this episode a 4.5 out of 10. Quite the gulf in uh, choices here. So with um, my seven, Matt's 4.5, and Chili's eight, we have an average of 6.5, which ties it with Eric Idle's episode. So it's, uh, it's, for, for us this year, it's actually our second, second highest of the season as, as a group here. For the folks over at the IMDb, they give this one a 7.7, making it the fifth highest rated show of the season as of November 22nd, 2001, and the 88th best uh, to date. And there's a few other superlatives for this episode, and they're all musical. Uh, The Village Voice puts the Simon and Harrison performance as the 16th best, and Ultimate Classic Rock listed in their top 60 performances. So I don't know if that's actual performance or if that's who it is. I, I suspect it's who it is as much as anything else. But yeah, this one's certainly known more for its music. So yeah, Chili, thanks very much for coming by. And we're going to have you back again later in the year, a couple more times this season. I think we'll see you again in about four or five weeks. Awesome. Thanks again for having me, guys. And yeah, thanks for giving me a good one, but I'll still take any trash you have coming off the table. There's still a lot of trash to come. And Matt, uh, next week, you, you probably know by now who our uh, host and musical guests are. Jody Foster and I'm blanking. Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson, right. So we have uh, 14-year-old Jody Foster coming out, uh, the first minor to host. And Brian Wilson, how are, how are you on Brian Wilson? I don't, I like a couple of albums. I'm, I'm uh, a bit, I don't know, I guess I feel a little hesitant. It really seems to me like another 
uh, middle of the road musical guest uh, as far as you know excitement is concerned. But I don't know. Brian Wilson's got a lot of stuff. Uh, he's a weird guy. He's got a lot of good pop songs. So I, yeah, my mind is open. I'm ready to be pleased. So we'll be back in about a week with episode nine of season two. But until then, two of us will be liking Paul Simon here in SNL. <laughs>